I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. The rare disease community in July celebrated the passage in the House of the 21st Century Cures Act, legislation that promises, among other things, to accelerate the development of drugs to treat rare diseases. But the legislation appears to be stalled in the Senate as the clock is running and concern growing that it may not be getting the attention it needs to push it across the finish line. We spoke to Max Bronstein, Senior Director of Public and Government Relations for the Every Life Foundation for Rare Diseases, about the legislation, where it stands today, and what it'll take to see it become law. Max, thanks for joining us. My great pleasure. Thanks for having me. The 21st Century Cures Act, a a sweeping piece of legislation that has had wide support from the rare disease community, has been an unusual bipartisan success and and passed the House in July, but the legislation now appears to be stalled in the Senate. We're going to talk about the legislation, what it seeks to do, what it means to the rare disease community, but first, can you bring us up to date? What's, What's the process going forward? What are the timetables? And and is there a risk that this dies without seeing a Senate vote? So, uh, yeah, where to begin here? Let me let me start by actually backing up a little bit and saying that uh, on the House side, um, we, we had two tremendous champions for this bill. Uh, we had uh, Congressman Upton and Rep- Representative Biggett, who really just kind of pulled out all the stops to make this possible. Um, them and their staffs worked incredibly hard to make this still a reality, and, and they spent months trying to compromise and really, you know, reach an agreement that, um, as we saw when it, when it passed the House, it passed with a kind of overwhelming bipartisan support, which, which was terrific. Um, going forward, though, um, when we're looking at the Senate, uh, we unfortunately don't have that same level of mom- momentum because we don't have champions in the Senate like we saw on the House side. So we're, we're really uh, anxious and waiting for um, certain senators to step up and decide that they want to make this a priority, that they want to really take the lead on, on this bill. So that's that's what we're hoping to see on, on the Senate side. Um, what has happened on the Senate is back all the way back in January, we saw um, some of the members of the HELP Committee the Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee that uh, leads healthcare, among other things, for, for the Senate. They did release uh, a white paper which outlined some of the, um, I guess, items and, and ideas that they uh, were intending to put into a draft. Um, we've also known that they've been holding lots of meetings, hearings uh, on, on this topic, so they've been gathering information. But the problem lies in that what we have not actually seen is a draft legislation. Um, so this is something that's critical for the process to move forward. And we've been hearing, we've been hearing um, from them over time. Um, basically, they've been promising to release the draft, and, and this has been going on for several months now, yet none of us in the community have, have seen it. So this is very troubling given all of the other uh, legislative distractions that that could occur between now and the end of the year, and especially given that we are, you know, 
coming up on uh, what's going to definitely be a hotly contested residential race. So all of those things um, could potentially distract from actually getting something done around innovation for healthier Americans. How much of an issue is the clock here? Uh, it's, it's a huge issue because um, what we've seen historically is that in presidential election years, it can be hard to move um, very big pieces of legislation, especially pieces of legislation that are potentially controversial. And, um, you know, in our community, this is, this is something that's probably going to be pretty non-controversial, but uh, what what we saw in the House version was billions in new funding for NIH, which is desperately needed, in addition to hundreds of millions in new funding for, for FDA, which is also desperately needed. But the challenge becomes when you, when you put in those sort of big budget items, is how do you pay for those things? So, um, that's, and that's where it gets tricky politically because uh, oh. we have we have all these rules in place now that, that says, you know, if you want to boost funding for one area, you have to um, take that money out of some other existing area of, of government. So, you know, we see that as, as being a potential roadblock. Um, and, and there are ways around this, too. But um, well, there, still, there has been uh-huh. growing criticism that the legislation and its effort to accelerate the path to market for some drugs and devices would short-circuit the existing safety regime that's been established with the FDA. Do you, do you see that as a legitimate argument, and is that something that's getting played out in the Senate at all? Um, potentially getting played out in, in the Senate, but what what has actually been published, and fortunately it has been published as widely as the critics, is um, you can you can listen to the, the current acting commissioner, you can listen to Dr. Woodcock as well, and there are uh, very, very clear quotes from them about 21st century cures where they have been asked directly, you know, will this threaten patient safety? Will it do anything to lower FDA's standards? And they say, you know, unequivocally that no, this is not something that's going to hurt the FDA's review process. It's not going to hurt the standards that the agency has set out for a number of years. So unfortunately, what we're, what we're hearing is, is from uh, some critics who, um, you know, have not actually been listening to what the FDA is saying because the, the FDA has been very supportive of, of this legislation overall and they've been very clear that this is not going to negatively impact patient safety at all. The other thing that's happened since the, the passage of, of the legislation in the House has been the case of Turing Pharmaceutical, which triggered a backlash against pharmaceutical companies' pricing of drugs. It, it's been a long time since the pharmaceutical industry was used favorably by the public, but has this added to reticence to senators who may not want to do things seen as favorable to the industry? You know, I think it has. Um, basically, you know, these all these media articles that, that have come out about drug prices um, has definitely created quite a bit of fervor around this, this issue. I think what's still very important for us to keep in mind is that us, you know, coming from the patient community, coming from rare disease organizations, are one of our top concerns continues to be and, and will be for the foreseeable future, the lack of available treatments and um, make treatments viable. You know, we have to partner with the sector. We have to support industry. We have to give them the incentives that are needed to bring new treatments to patients. So, um, you know, for, for many in this community, pricing is, is an issue, but the most important issue is, is actually not about pricing. It's about having a treatment available because so many rare disease patients 95% uh, still have nothing, which uh, is, is a huge challenge for them. Well, let's talk about that. The, the 21st Century Cures Act is a, a broad piece of legislation intended to accelerate the development of new drugs and devices. 
one of the things the legislation seeks to do is encourage the development of, of drugs to treat rare diseases. Perhaps you can put that into some context as far as the need goes. What's the universe of rare diseases and how big a therapeutic gap do we have in their treatment? Right. Happy to do that. So um, the, the current estimate is that we have, we know of about 7,000 rare diseases. And 95% of them still have no FDA approved treatment. The FDA has approved roughly 400 treatments for rare diseases. Um, and that is, is over the time period of about 30 years, which was when um, the Orphan Drug Act was first signed into law. This was a piece of legislation that was signed into law all the way back in 1983. But among other things, what it did was create very powerful incentives for, for companies to make it sort of financially viable for them to invest in the rare space. So we, you know, we saw that as a tremendous victory and a huge watershed moment for folks in the rare disease community. Um, but we also see the 21st Century Cures Act as kind of the next step there. We, we think that there's there's certain provisions in there, including one called the Open Act, which creates an incentive for companies to repurpose existing therapies for rare diseases. We see this as something that could actually double that number of treatments for rare diseases over the next several years. So right now we have, we're looking at about 400. We think we could get 800 or perhaps more um, if, if this bill is signed into the law. So one of the problems is that while there are many drugs approved that may provide benefit to rare disease patients, drug makers don't generally explore potential rare disease applications of those approved drugs. Why is that? I mean, there's a lot of reasons, but I, I think the, the primary one is the same challenge that we face in the rare disease community. We, we just, for the individual rare disease, we don't have the same number of patients that you do for much more common diseases like diabetes, like or like heart disease. So traditionally, there's been less financial incentives. Um, but what we're, what we're seeing, especially now with, with the advent of precision medicine, um, and we're seeing more companies get into the rare disease space because we, we have the science in a lot of cases where we know what's going on in a, a pathophysiological basis. We know what's, what's going on at the cellular level. We have a sense of what drug targets and drug therapies might look like. It's just sort of a case of, of being able to build a financial, um, a, a financially viable model to make it work as, as best. So, you know, we're starting to, to see that happen. Um, and what the Open Act would do would, would give companies six more months of exclusivity, which is a, is a very modest incentive, but we think it could be enough in any cases to get a company interested in doing trial on repurposing existing drug for rare disease. The nice thing about this model is we're talking about a drug that's already been approved by the FDA for a different application. So we don't have to redo the, the sort of R&D process all over. We're just starting from a much higher level, which would be a, a very rapid way of getting a new treatment to, to a patient. And, and just to clarify, the, the Open Act, which was put forward by the Every Life Foundation, is now part of the 21st century. That's right. It was, it was included. So the Open Act was modeled on the best pharmaceuticals for children's Act, which provides an additional six months of exclusivity for drug makers that do specific pediatric trials for their drugs. How well does that work? Uh, it, it's worked incredibly well. I, I think we saw about 400 label changes uh, since, since that bill became law. So, you know, that's why we, we wanted to model it off of something that, that has this, this evidence base. So we know that this model has worked. We believe it can work again for, for rare diseases. 
And, and why is repurposing drugs an attractive strategy for expanding treatments for diseases? So the way I like to look at it as basically the low-hanging fruit, right? So um, traditionally, when you think about drug development, you used to hear about um, development figures two billion dollars or somewhere in that range. You look at uh, timeline and twenty years, which um, is, is the case when you're starting scratch. But the nice thing about when you're when you're repurposing, again, we're talking about a drug that's already been proved to be safe and efficacious for for some pre-existing patient. It's just a matter of running another trial to see if it's effective and safe for for rare disease patients. So, you know, we this is probably one of the facts ways we can think of to get new new treatments to rare conditions that really cut down the time itself. So one of the interesting things the legislation seems to seek to do is formalize the role of patients and give them voice. What will that mean to patients with rare diseases? So this uh, process, 21st century jurors, has been absolutely huge for the rare disease. Uh, this, this has been one of the first times that the community as a whole has had a really strong voice in the discussion and debate. If you look at the bill itself, there were um, almost almost a dozen provisions in there that were really fought for by the rare community. And many of them um, were you know, were still in, in the bill at the end of the day and were passed by the House. So this was actually a huge moment for, for the rare disease community. Um, and, and we're hoping the same sort of impact on Senate as well. Uh, at the recent Global Gene Summit, there was this moment when you took to the stage and directed the audience to a phone list of members of the U.S. Senate that was on the table and encouraged everyone to take out their phones on the spot and call their senator to urge passage of the legislation. What role do you see rare disease patients playing in pushing this legislation across the finish line? So rare disease patients are... Uh, essential for making this a higher priority and for making it happen. Um, we, you know, when during that, the House process, we saw the impact of several individual rare disease patients who actually built very strong relationships with their own members of Congress or other members from the state and these um, Chairman Upton, who was the So we saw that on, on the House side that you know, their input and, and all of the work they did in getting to know their legislators, building those personal relationships, made a huge difference in terms of demonstrating to, to the members of Congress why this is something that should be a top priority and, and really driving home the message that patients can't wait for this. The longer that legislation is delayed, the less likely we are to have jurors and treatment in a timely way. So you know, they were really crucial in driving home the message that patients can't wait. What's the path forward here? What's it going to take to, to see this legislation pass? So we're going to continue to need all of the grassroots patient support we can monitor. Um, every every you know, patient needs to speak up. We, we think there are roughly 30 million patients in the country. So if we even had 10% of them calling Congress, getting to know their members of Congress, explaining to them why their disease should be a higher priority why you know, they, they need to be hearing from, from people about this. Um, that's exactly what is going to be, is to really push this bill to the point where we can actually make it law. But before that can happen, we still need the, the Senate to actually 
that that every member of Congress, every senator is hearing from their constituents about the issue really children. Max Bronstein, Senior Director of Public and Government Relations for the Every Life Foundation for Rare Diseases. Max, thanks for your time today. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.